My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 21. We're going to be reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Genesis 38, Job 29 and 30, Proverbs 3, verse 28 through 32. Genesis 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man, Adulamah, named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, who was named Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, He may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? "'Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand,' she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judas sent the young goat by his friend to the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, "'Where is the shrine prostitute who beside the road at Enam?' "'There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here,' they said." So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who live there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitutes here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. 
Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. And she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zerah. Job 29. Job continues his discourse. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head. And by his light, I walk through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream and the rocks poured out for my streams of olive oil. When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside and the old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, because I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was, my, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger." I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. I thought, I will die in my own house, my days as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach to the water, and the dew will lie all night on my branches. My glory will not fade, the bow will be ever new in my hand. People listened to my expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. The words fell gently on their ears. They waited for me as for showers and drank in my words as the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat at their chief. I dwelt as a king among his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. But now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheep's dogs. Of what use was the strength of their hands to me, since their vigor had gone from them? Haggard from want and hunger, they roamed the parched land and desolate wastelands at night. In the brush they gathered salt herbs, and their food was the root of the broomba brush. They were banished from the human society, shouted at as if they were thieves. They were forced to live in the dry stream beds, among the rocks and in holes in the ground. They brayed among the bushes and huddled in the under undergrowth. A base and nameless brood, they were driven out of the land. And now those young men mock me in song. I have become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they throw off restraint in my presence. On my right, the tribe attacks. They lay snares for my feet. They build their siege ramps against me. They break up my road. They succeed in destroying me. No one can help him, they say. They advance as through a gaping breach. Amid the ruins, they come rolling in. Terrors overwhelm me. My dignity is driven away as by the wind. My safety vanishes like a cloud. And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. 
You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in his distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Have I not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I have become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My lyre is turning to mourning, and my pipe to the sound of wailing. Proverbs 3, verse 28. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you, when you already have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor, who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse anyone for no reason, when they have done you no harm. Do not envy the, the violent or choose any of their ways, for the Lord detests the perverse but takes the upright into his confidence. Um, do you find this story that I thought was going to be about Joseph disruptive and confusing? At least I know we're not alone in this. So many scholars have written about this passage and focused on different things. For example, uh, Father Mike Schmitz, and I know it's the Catholic tradition to focus on the part where the second son that Tamar was married to um, essentially used what we modern day call the pullout method, and they think that that is un- that is taking apart the act of conceiving with uh, like knowing your spouse. So they think that that's wrong and they really focus um, on, on that. But I feel a sense of assurance that there is a reason for this passage placed here on purpose because several biblical scholars point out its connection and the repetition of motifs and Hebrew word choices. I shared in the show notes a helpful German theologian's research on Genesis 38. I'm reminded how God picks a human, not because they earned it or deserved it, just based on God's generosity. Then God blesses them and calls them into his rescue mission and to be name bearers and blessers of others. I notice how often God picks a human that is socioculturally unexpected. For example, not the first person in the story and not the first son, which was common in that day. The concept of picking the firstborn is called primogeniture, and it was it was and has been a historically common practice. Primogeniture in a patriarchal society means the firstborn son is expected to inherit everything and make the decisions for the rest of the family in the father's absence. Dr. Hans George Wunsch points to this passage as answering the question, which of the sons of Jacob will take over the right of primogeniture and step into the line of the blessing coming down from Abraham after Isaac and Jacob. Who's next? After all, Jacob has 12 sons, but Reuben was the first. Yet based on his violation of Bilhah, we discussed in Genesis 36, and its affirmation of its wrongness in 1 Chronicles 5, and perhaps based on the mass murder of Simeon and Levi um, on behalf of avenging, perhaps, their sister Dinah. The next in line for primogeniture, they don't receive the benefit. We know that. So although the Bible doesn't expressly state why Simeon and Levi don't get this, they don't. Then there's the question of whether it will be Judah. He would be next. One of the handmaiden's sons or Rachel's firstborn son, Joseph or the youngest son, Benjamin. This passage builds upon Judah's 
egocentrism as we last read that it was his idea to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. And here we read he basically left his family and married a Canaanite woman outside of his faith. He had three sons. The first was described as wicked in the Lord's sight. The second also took exploitive actions that were wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put both of them to death. The problem for Judah was that these sons were married to a woman he selected named Tamar. While the author of the passage makes it clear that the Lord put the first two sons to death for their own wickedness, Judah was suspicious that it was Tamar. So Judah was worried his youngest son may die too. So Judah told Tamar to live in her father's household until his youngest son was old enough to marry. The passage says a long time went by in verse 12. We also learn Judah's wife dies, and then after Judah recovered from his grief, he went to Timnah. Tamar heard of this and in verse 14 affirms that Judah's youngest son was also of age to marry, but Judah had not consented to the marriage. According to Hittite law, Dr. Walton points out, a widow without children was a woman without legal, economic, or social status, a woman without a household, and the widow goes to the brothers, and without a brother, to his father, and if the father dies, to the father's brother." It relegates Judah's duty to Tamar to place her back in her father's household when it's likely that father had already paid a dowry um, to Judah to take responsibility for her. And then we read about how he takes advantage of her in a way as a prostitute. This is obviously outside of the Genesis 2 order for sexual relationships. And how she, in a way, takes advantage of him by deceiving him about her identity, although Judah has not taken proper accountability for her in the order of their cultural laws. So she takes his seal, cord, and staff as an identification or insurance, in a way, but Judah was still the one with the economic, legal, and social upper hand. He wants to publicly burn Tamar when he finds out about her fornication, public shame, and violent death. She privately makes him aware of the irony of the situation. Her fornication was his fornication, private accountability, and no demand or ask for retribution. Yet, we see this incredible sense of maturity in Judah when he has all the power and could go through with covering up his situation. Instead, Judah states in verse 26, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. Judah did not sleep with her again, but he did claim and care for her and his children. Twins Perez and Zerah. And then in Matthew 1.3, we know Tamar is one of the grand matriarchs of the genealogy that leads to Jesus. Perez, the second twin to be born, according to record, because his brother Zerah had put his hand out first, became the lineage in the rescue mission to bring the wounded victor, Jesus. Also note that Judah offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin later in Genesis 44. There seems to be something mature, restorative, and redemptive in Judah's posture towards God and others. Okay, so Judah's carrying on part of the rescue mission. And in the next part of the story, we will continue with Joseph, who also plays an important role in the story. But we learn here, it is not his descendants that lead to Jesus. In closing, I really like the Matthew Henry commentary on this passage, which notes how God will show that his choice for selecting a person is of grace and not merit. In this story, we read how God is choosing Judah in grace and is showing us that Christ came into the world to save sinners, even the chief sinners, and he is not ashamed upon their repentance to be allied to them. 
Also, that the worth and worthiness of Jesus Christ is on his person alone. It's not derived from his holier-than-thou ancestors. That's why I sometimes push back on my children's Bible material. I see that describes people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the faithful or the heroes because I think it oversimplifies the story in a way that detracts from the story God is telling, where God picks someone not based on merit and through God's grace, and regardless of their choice, choices, often starting in deception, taking in violence, towards the end, more faithfulness and righteousness through God's transformation and relationship. Regardless of the people God picks in the story, we see how God's rescue mission is on, and his story is coming to fruition, and it's unfolding. Yes, we see some faithful maturity and growth, and yes, we can be inspired by it. But we always have to remember, the Bible is a story about God, and not zooming in too close and over-celebrating or oversimplifying the people God called as people of pure valor or absolute faithfulness. Instead, I think it's important that we see God's immutable character and absolute faithfulness despite the human condition and failing. We make mistakes and we learn lessons about God's trust. What an awesome God we serve. He stays, He loves, and He forgives. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.